Now, today we are uh, launching a series called Summer Playlist. And uh, what I love, I've always been a music guy uh, growing up. I've always loved um, different musicians and artists and instruments. And um, what I love about technology is that now you can make a playlist so easy of all your different, different types of songs, different genres, different artists. Uh, of course, growing up, for me, that uh, always involved a couple of cassette tapes and uh, pushing, you know, the buttons at just the right time. But now, because of technology, uh, you can just drag and drop and create an incredible playlist of all these different voices and different artists and different songs uh, on your favorite streaming app. And so that's what this series is for us through the summer, is a playlist of sorts. And so uh, over the next nine weeks, you're going to hear from different artists and different topics, and it's going to be a summer playlist. So uh, we're going to kick this off today, and I'm going to be speaking. You're going to hear from uh, one of our staff guys, Eli, this summer. Uh, You're going to hear from some people who you're familiar with, who have spoken here in the past. We, we refer to those guys as the classics. And then uh, you're going to hear from some new up-and-coming artists and uh, people that haven't spoken here before. And so it's just going to be a really fun uh, next uh, nine weeks as we go through this summer playlist. And so I want to kick it off today by talking about this topic of hope. Uh, there is a, I was reading this last week, this article about a, uh, a city called Flagstaff, Maine. And Flagstaff, Maine was this community. Uh, It had several hundred families that were a part of this community. And uh, for more than 100 years, Flagstaff was a community where people lived and they worked and they went to school and they went to church and uh, raised families and raised grandkids. And uh, it was just an active community, not a large city, but several hundred families. And in 1949, everything changed uh, because construction of the Long Falls Dam and because of that construction, uh, everybody in the, in the community of Flagstaff was forced to sell their homes to the power company because they were building a hydroelectric plant. And in order to do that, once they built the dam, they were going to have to flood the city of Flagstaff. And so Flagstaff, Maine was going to be completely underwater because of where it was located. And as you can imagine, in the months leading up to uh, that day when the town was going to be flooded, everybody stopped doing home improvements. Everybody, nobody had a reason, right? So you've got that uh, to-do list around your house. Imagine if you knew that in two months your, your house is going to be completely underwater. Like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to build that addition anymore. I don't think I'm going to paint the barn. I don't think I'm going to make any upgrades or upgrade my appliances or anything like that because you knew that in just a couple of months, everything was going to be buried. And if you visit Flagstaff today, what you will find at that site is Maine's largest man-made lake. Right there with the community of Flagstaff at the bottom. Completely at the bottom of that lake. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Don't miss this. There's absolutely no reason to try to improve anything in the present if you don't have any hope for the future. That's that's really what stood out to me about this story was just everybody stopped doing everything because there's no reason to try to make any changes in the present if I don't have any hope for the future. If you believe that your life is never going to get any better, if you believe that your marriage is never going to improve or you're never going to move forward in your job or your career or your network of friends is never going to grow, then why even try, right? And as kids, we often have dreams of things that are going to happen to us when we get older. Sometimes uh, kids dream of being a professional athlete. I know for me, I I had these dreams that I was going to be in the NBA, and then reality set in. Thank God I lowered my standards. Now it's like, hey, I might be able to join the St. Michael Men's B League. I still get dunked on. I'm feeling a lot better. I got my verticals up to three inches now. It's amazing. 
Sometimes when kids are younger, they dream of incredible uh, academic goals. I know for me, I thought, you know what? I think I want to be valedictorian in my high school class. And then reality set in. And thank God I lowered my standards. <laughs> hey, let's try to graduate. Some people, when they're younger, uh, maybe kids dream of, you know, growing up and getting married to the hottest person on the planet. Thank God Cherry lowered her standards. <laughs> and a lack of hope leads us to this attitude where we say these four very dangerous words. I might as well. Have you ever been in that place where, where it's like, well, I might as well. Because it feels like nothing's going to change. It feels like nothing's going to improve. So I might as well. I might as well drink that. I might as well eat that. I might as well spend that. I might as well go there. I might as well say that. I might as well do that. I might as well. Those words, that phrase, I might as well, is a, is a hopeless phrase. It's a phrase spoken when you don't feel like there's any hope for the future. And while oftentimes when we experience that, we try to pursue things that we think will fill that void. Maybe it's even just trying to practice self-improvement, self-help, right? And, and maybe that helps a little. You stand in front of the mirror each morning and you say, I'm a champion. And you click your heels together and go on with your day. And, you know, positivity is a great thing. It's not bad to have a positive attitude. But oftentimes just trying to just psych yourself up or self-help really doesn't provide a lot of hope. Sometimes we try to accumulate possessions. And ultimately we know that no matter how much we accumulate, no matter how much we acquire, Whatever security that might provide for us, whatever hope we think that gives us is temporary. Maybe we uh, try to experience pleasure, so we go on, you know, big exotic vacations to Brainerd or Duluth. Or maybe we work really hard to achieve career success, or we work really hard to achieve outward beauty, or we uh, fix everything we can fix, or buy clothes that we feel are trendy, or we nip and tuck, and, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but all... Ultimately, outward beauty never provides us with a sense of hope, a sense of security. And many people even turn to religion in an effort to experience hope. The, the, the thought process is, if I go to church, if I'm a good person, if I do, you know, X, Y, and Z, if I check off the right things on the right list, then maybe the weights and the sorrows and the suffering and the circumstances and the things that I experience will go away. And oftentimes, unintentionally, uh, Christianity can sort of get pitched that way. It was like, hey, follow Jesus and everything's going to work out. And that's really not the case. In fact, there's one thing that's ultimately true for all of us. Number one, Jesus never promised the absence of suffering. Think about that for a second. Jesus never promised that if you follow me, then you won't suffer. In fact, it's been documented over the last uh, three years. This is the first time uh, in the United States of America since the Spanish flu that for three years in a row we have experienced a decline in the average life expectancy of people who live in the United States of America. For the last three years, it's been in decline. That's the first time that it's happened three years in a row since the Spanish flu. And it's not because of COVID. It's because of what are referred to as the, um, the deaths of despair. And the deaths of despair are suicide, alcoholism, and addiction. They're, they're things that we go, man, I don't have any hope, so I might as well. And that's actually the leading cause of this decline that we've seen in the average lifespan of citizens in the United States of America over the last three years. And yet I think it's really important to note, Jesus never said, hey, if you follow me, you're never going to suffer. 
In John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is having what will probably be one of the last conversations that he has with his disciples before he's put to death. And he's talking to them. And all through these chapters, he's saying, here's, I want you to know what to expect. I want you to be prepared. I want to set you up so that you understand what's going to happen. And and the pressure that they're going to face once uh, his life is over and once he leaves and puts the church in their hands. And he's, he's walking them through this. And here's one of the things that he says in John chapter 16. He says, here on earth, you will have trials and sorrows. He doesn't say, hey, here on earth, follow me and everything is going to be great. He says, look, here on earth, you will have trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, there is a whole brand of Christian thinking and theology that basically says that, man, if you want to have hope, it's to be found in the exact same place that culture tells us to find it, and that is get rich, get healthy, be happy. Get rich, get healthy, be happy, right? Health and wealth and victory, and that's what God wants for you, and you're never going to, you know, you follow Jesus, and God wants only good things for you. And I believe that as a loving father, God wants good things for us. But I think it's important to note a couple of things. First, Jesus never said that. He never said, follow me and you won't suffer. And you're going to experience health and wealth and freedom and all those things. When the message of Jesus is that God just wants you to be victorious in health and wealth and circumstances and relationships, what we're basically saying is, as long as your circumstances are going good, then God is working on your behalf. And Jesus said, here on earth, you will have trials. You will have sorrows. You will experience suffering, but that you shouldn't lose heart because he's overcome the world. The implication there being that our hope is actually attached to something that isn't a part of this world, that our hope is actually attached to something that isn't connected to our circumstances, isn't connected to our situations. And here's the reality. Jesus never promised the absence of suffering. And the second thing that we should note is if that's the standard, if the standard is that you should always be healthy and wealthy and wise and, you know, successful and always have more than enough and all these things, and that somehow shows God's favor or God's blessing in your life, then that standard excludes Jesus himself. Like, think about this. If God's plan is for you to prosper financially and always have more than enough, what does that say about Jesus? who was born into a poor family, worked a common job for 30 years, and then spent three years in ministry, flat broke, homeless, sometimes hungry, and had a difficult time paying his taxes. That was Jesus. What about relationships? Did Jesus ever say, if you follow me, all of your relationships are going to go splendidly? Did Jesus ever experience pain in his relationships? Well, let's see. His family disowned him. Uh, His friends all abandoned him. One of his disciples betrayed him, and the crowd screamed, crucify him. I mean, I don't mean to overstate my case, but it appears he had some relational strain in his life. And then, to top it all off, he died at the ripe old age of 33. See, Jesus never promised the absence of suffering, but here's what he did promise, hope. See, hope is much bigger than optimism. This is really important for us to understand. Hope is much bigger than optimism. Optimism is a really great quality. I love being around optimistic people. I think most of us enjoy being around optimistic people, people who who see the glasses half full, people who want to see the best in others. It's a good quality to have. But it's a predisposition to expect things to turn out well. Optimism is focused primarily on circumstances. But hope, hope is much deeper than optimism. Today I want to look at a prayer that was prayed by the Apostle Paul and how this prayer can have a profound impact on our lives today. And he's writing to people living in the Roman Empire in the first century. 
And he writes this prayer in Romans 15. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I, I, I pray that God, I want you to know God is the source of hope, and I pray that it fills you so completely that you actually overflow with it. Now here's what Paul doesn't say. I pray that all of your circumstances will work out so that you are filled a bit with hope. Because once your circumstances work out, then you're going to be hopeful. And see, some people wait for their circumstances to bring them hope, and other people bring hope to their circumstances. Because it's not rooted in their circumstances. There's a story in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 13. And uh, what we discover is the nation of Israel, God has promised to give them this land. And, and Moses, who's leading the nation of Israel at the time, he sends out 12 scouts. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to scout the land. I want you to scout the people living there. And I want you to bring back a report and bring back recommendations as to how we should proceed. And as you read through the story, 10 of them return and they say, whoa, 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 we can't go forward. The risk is too great and we're too weak and things are too dangerous. But two of the guys, two of the 12 came back and they gave a different report. They said, no, 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 we can't go backward. The opportunity is too great. God is too strong. Things are not what they appear. How is it that these different individuals looking at the exact same situation, scouting the exact same people in the exact same land, came back with two drastically different reports. It's because 10 of them were not viewing it through the lens of hope, and two of them were. They were filled with hope, not because they looked at the circumstance and thought, oh, this is all going to work out. They had their hope rooted in God. In fact, you've probably heard uh, the names of the two hopers. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. If you've never heard those, uh, those names in the scriptures before, you've probably heard them today. You probably know someone named Joshua and Caleb because what's fascinating is thousands of years later, on a different side of the world, they're still two of the most popular names that we name our kids today. Do you know what the names of the other 10 guys are? Probably not. You don't even remember them. But they were listed right alongside Joshua and Caleb. Here they are. Uh, they're given to us in the scriptures. See if you, any of you parents are considering any of these names. Shemua. Any, anybody? Got a baby Shemua coming? Uh, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sethur, Geul, and Nabi. Any baby Nabis out here? We don't even remember those names. We don't even think about those names. But somehow, like Joshua and Caleb don't sound weird to us because they actually have been in our verbiage for a long time. It's interesting. Louis Schmieds was a theologian and author who wrote that uh, hope is actually made up of a, a cord of three different strands. And the first one is imagination. That we can actually envision something in the future that doesn't yet exist. And that we can, there, there's something in our mind's eye that we can picture. And then he says the second thing is desire. That we actually want what we envision. That we want that to come to pass. And the third is belief. That we actually believe that that thing that we envision and the thing that we want, that we actually have the potential to, to reach it. And he says, when you have all three of those things, you have hope. And it's interesting because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul writes when he's writing to the Romans. And he writes this, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Hope, by definition, requires uncertainty. It's just, I see it, I, I want it, I believe it can happen, but I don't have it yet. Because if I already have it, then I don't have to hope for it. 
Hope is the ability to persist. Hope is the ability to keep faith and to cling to what matters and find a way to move into the future. Paul never says, may the God of optimism fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with optimism. So that you, so that you just instinctively see the world as a half glass full, right? Hope transcends circumstances. Hope is not something that is uh, attached to wh- whether or not things work out the way that we thought they would. But when Paul writes these words, he's writing in the first century, most people in the first century in the Roman Empire did not think highly of hope. See, in our sort of uh, modern world, we hear the word hope as a positive thing. It's something that we go, yeah, hope is a good thing. But in the first century, you have to understand that they did not view hope as a good thing. They didn't see it that way. The big issue in the ancient world, as it is for many of us now, is how do we deal with suffering? What do we do when the reality is that we're standing at point A and we want to get to point B? We envision something, we want it, but, you know, we've been robbed of that. It's been taken away from us because of poverty or because of a virus or because of a recession or because of death or something else that's completely beyond our control. What do we do with that? And ancient writers generally said, you've just got to learn to count on yourself, that uh, hope simply sets you up for misery. Because if you hope for something, inevitably that hope is going to disappoint you. And so their belief was, here's how you live. You, you just learn that life is cruel. You just learn that life is difficult, that life is hard, and you're not going to get the things that you want and the things that you hope for. So don't set yourself up for misery. And if you can achieve that, that somehow that makes you the strong one. There's a, a, a show called Ted Lasso about an American football coach who goes to soccer, uh, coach soccer in England. He doesn't know much about the game, but he's just this very optimistic individual. And at one point, uh, they're going to play a team, and they say, he says, you know, everybody in the locker room is down. He's like, well, what's going on? And they're like, well, we're playing this team, and we haven't beat them in a while. He's like, well, how, how long has it been? They said, 60 years since we've beat this one team. And he's like, wow, that is, that is definitely a while. And as they're talking, it, everywhere he goes in the whole community, there's a phrase that everybody uses, and they go, it's the hope that'll kill you. And he goes to the pub, and he's talking about the game, and they go, yeah, it's the hope that'll kill you. He's walking down the street, and he sees a girl playing soccer, and she's like, it's the hope that'll kill you. And everybody on the team, the club owner, she's like, it's the hope that'll kill you. And that is actually captures pretty well the way that people thought in the first century in the Roman Empire. It is the hope that'll kill you. If you don't have hope, then you can't be disappointed. If you don't have hope, then you, don't set your, you just know life is cruel. Life is difficult. And in the ancient world, people who suffered were weak. In fact, the word that they used to describe weak and suffering people was the word groaning. You know what groaning is? It's, oh. And people who were weak and people who suffered groaned. It's also why teenagers groan, because teenagers are constantly suffering at the hands of their merciless parents. Can I please, well, no, here, oh. Instead, what they taught in the first century is that if you could master your spirit, if you could become so self-reliant, if you could become so strong that no circumstance could ever disturb you, that you were actually a conqueror that you were actually a warrior, that that was actually what victory looked like. In fact, the Greek word for conquering is nikao, which is where we get the word Nike. We get the word Nike from the Greek goddess of victory. In fact, the Nike swoosh is actually uh, designed to be one of the wings of 
the Greek goddess of victory. It means to conquer, to experience victory. And, and the wise sage in the first century knew that it wasn't just enough to conquer another nation or conquer another kingdom or have some kind of military exploits. Real conquering meant overcoming one's internal opponents. Real conquering meant if I'm self-reliant enough, if I'm strong enough mentally, if I can just wrap my mind around this idea that the, that the world is just a harsh and cruel place and I never allow myself to hope, then I can never be disappointed and it makes me stronger than anyone else. And I can overcome any disappointment or fear or worry or even death because I'm a conqueror. Nothing in life can disappoint me. Nothing in life can let me down. I will never allow myself to hope. So you have to understand how revolutionary this is when into that setting and into that culture, the Apostle Paul writes this letter and he says this, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. And the first century wise man would have said, absolutely, we agree with that. Life is hard, you run into trials, you just revel in it because that makes you stronger, right? And then Paul says, for we know they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character. And the ancient sage would say, we absolutely agree with that. And then Paul continues, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Time out, Paul. No, 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 no. It's the hope that kills you. That's what makes you weak. That's what makes you groan and suffer because that will let you down. Hope will always disappoint. But Paul continues to write. He says, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. He says, I know this is the dominant worldview. I know this is how you think. But let me tell you something. The hope we have in Jesus does not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The reason the ancients did not believe in hope for human beings is because they did not believe in a hope for the universe. The way that they viewed the world was that the world was not moving toward anything. It just, it just existed. It just was. And your life wasn't moving toward anything. It just was. And you endure it as best as you can. And you try to overcome. And you live. And you, you know, eat, sleep, and drink, and be merry. To the, whatever amount of enjoyment you can suck out of this life, do it. Because then your life is over. And that's the end. And the reality is, Paul had heard this message of Jesus. Paul had heard the Apostle John talk about in the beginning, that there was a beginning, that there was a creator, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was like a light that came into the darkness, and the darkness could never extinguish it. And Paul has these words, and, and he, he's listened to the message of Jesus, and he knows there is more to this life than this life, and that one day God will restore and renew all things. In fact, the, the prophets called it shalom or the kingdom of God. And one day everything will not be messed up. Everything will be restored. And one day all things will be as they sh should be. But Paul says the reason it hasn't happened yet is because shalom has been disrupted. It's been disrupted by sin and by violence and by injustice. But he wants everyone to know the God of hope does not give up easily. The God of hope has found a way through. And it came at a great cost that would actually shock the world. And so he continues to write in the next verse, and he says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though someone, uh, he says, Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. 
But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He says, you want to know why this hope does not disappoint? It's not because all things are going to turn out exactly the way that you want them to. It's not because when you start following Jesus, your whole situation is going to improve. It's not because you have somehow conquered your emotions or you somehow reached some sort of all-sufficient reason or logic or self-reliance. It's not because you never hope and so therefore you'll never be disappointed. He says it's because of Jesus. It's because our hope is not attached to anything in this world. Our hope is attached to something that is beyond ourselves. And he says, here's the good news. Jesus came at just the right time while we were sinners, and he died for us. And then he he has this little tangent. He goes, now most people wouldn't even die for a good person. And then he's like, well, maybe somebody might die for someone who's especially good, but most of the time we're not going to give our lives even for an upright person. But here's the twist. God sent Jesus, and he died while we were still sinners. That means... Hope does not disappoint because Jesus, in an act of incredible grace for sin-soaked and sin-damaged and sin-stained people like me and you, chose to give his life and suffer and groan and be made weak and show his incredible love for you and me. And then he rose from the dead to show that he has power over things in this world. That's why hope does not disappoint. Jesus died not for virtuous people and not for worthy people. He died for sinful people. And the answer to human suffering is not isolated, self-sufficient, all-powerful reason or logic or uh, hard-heartedness or callousness or just make sure that I never set myself up for disappointment. The solution is love. Love that enters into our suffering. Love that enters into our weakness. Love that groans with us. Love that experiences our anguish and suffers with us. And so Paul continues to write this letter to people in the Roman Empire. And he says this, Yet what we suffer now, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. He's like, we're we're caught up in the suffering. But you have to remember that hope isn't about what's happening now. Hope is about what's going to happen. It's about something taking place in eternity. And so Paul says, look, what we suffer now is nothing when you compare it to the glory that will be revealed to us later. For we know that all creation has been groaning. He's like, you're in your groaning, in your suffering, you're not alone. Creation itself is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit with us as a foretaste of future glory, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. He said, we've experienced that Jesus has come and he's brought his grace and he's brought hope, but yet we still suffer. And we're holding on to both of these realities. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Now, think about it like this. Uh, my, my second uh, daughter is going to be 15 this summer. And when she first started school, I'll never forget this, she came home from kindergarten and uh, she said, hey, it was, it was like mid-February. And she's like, uh, it, next week is my birthday and I need to bring cupcakes to class. I was like, I think you're a little confused. You were born in August. Well, many of you as parents, you're probably aware of this, that oftentimes schools celebrate the half birthday for summer-born kids. 
If you were born in the summer, uh, you don't ever get to, you know, celebrate your birthday. So the school goes, no, we're going to celebrate your half birthday so that everybody gets a chance. Now, my son was born June 25th, so his half birthday is December 25th. So I don't know what he's going to do. He's just never, ever going to celebrate. But she comes home and it's like half birthday. It's like, this is the, they're just making up holidays now. I can't believe this. And so, okay, we're going to get the cupcakes and, you know, and she gets to celebrate the half birthday at school and bring the cupcakes to class. And it, it just reminded me, it got me thinking about how kids, every time that they're younger, what do they do? They, they, every time you ask a kid what their age is, if they're like, if they're under the age of 12, basically, you know, or under the age of 10, there's, I don't know where the cutoff is, but at a certain point it stops. Like no, nobody in their 30s is like, yeah, I'm 38 and a half. But for some reason, you ask a four-year-old, and they are not four, okay? They're four and a half, all right? And don't you dare insult them by just saying that they're a four-year-old, all right? Because that half matters. It's a big deal. Because they want you to know that while I'm not yet five, I am no longer four. It's important. How old are you, buddy? I'm four and a half. And there's like an emphasis on that, you know? Don't miss this, all right, buddy? And I'm reminded of that because I think that there is this, why is it that kids do that? Why is it that kids are just like, I, want, I really want you to know that I'm four and a half. I really want you to know that I'm five and a half. I think it's because there is this, there's this longing in kids to always be the next age, right? Like when you're four, you can't wait to be five. When you're five, you can't wait to be six. And there's something about that, about the adventure of that next and so they want you to know, like, hey, I'm almost there, all right? And I, I'm not where I was, but I, I'm looking forward with anticipation to this next step. But I'm not where I was. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. And I think that it's such a reminder for me of how this plays out. That in the, in the arc of human history, where you and I live right now is that we live in the and-a-half stage of human history. We live in the already but not yet. Jesus has already come. We're, we're looking forward with anticipation to that day. And Paul says even creation itself is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Like, like it's, it's giving birth to a new day, but it's not there yet. It's like it's, it's, somewhere, it's somewhere in there. It's in the second trimester. It's in the third trimester, but it's not there yet. But you're looking forward with anticipation, but we're not where we used to be. Jesus has already come. He's already given us, Paul says, a foretaste of future glory, we already get to experience the love and the grace and the redemption and the wholeness and the healing that comes from experiencing the love and grace of Jesus. And yet we still, in the other hand, hold on to suffering and pain and sorrow and hardship and trials. We're in the already but not yet. We're in the end a half stage of humanity. And Paul says, but there's hope. Don't lose sight of hope because your hope is not found in where you were and in your situation. Your hope is found in what is coming, in the, the, the foretaste of future glory. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. And so we're the weak ones. We, we are broken. We have sin. We're groaning, but it's okay because Paul says creation is groaning with us. And then get a load of this. He says God's spirit is groaning with us. A groaning God are you kidding me? God groans. A God who chooses to suffer with us and enter into our weakness and our pain for sinful, unworthy people. Paul continues and he writes this, the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. 
So when we suffer and we groan, creation is groaning and God's spirit is groaning. He enters into our suffering. So Paul concludes that it's possible to experience hardship and at the same time be overflowing with hope. It's possible to experience sorrow and difficulty and really really difficult things in this life and at the same time hold on to hope. And then he continues writing this letter and he says this, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Our temptation is to think that when the circumstances don't work out, somehow I must have fallen out of God's favor. I must have fallen out of God's blessing. Somehow God doesn't love me anymore. Somehow something's happened. There must be some unconfessed sin in my life, some hidden sin that I need to, you know, bring to the surface. What is it? There's a disconnect. How can I be suffering if God loves me? And Paul says, no, 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 you've come to the wrong conclusion. He says, does it mean he no longer loves us if we experience all these things? Absolutely not. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours because Christ loves us. See, our our hope is not found in when our circumstances work out. Our hope is found in the one who loves us and overcame death and promises to renew all things again. Optimism is great. I love optimism. I I want to be around optimistic people. I want to be an optimistic person. It's great. But hope, hope is essential. Optimism is rooted in my circumstances. Hope is rooted in Jesus. It's much better. And here's why. Jesus came to give us hope for eternity. See, the hope that he offers isn't just, hey, I'm going to fix your circumstances here and now. It's hope that is in eternity. And the issue for most of us, myself included, is that we would rather have suffering removed completely. We'd rather the suffering just go away than endure suffering or endure pain because endurance implies waiting, and we're not very good at waiting. We live in a culture of convenience, and we have lost the art of waiting. It's why we have instant coffee and instant music, and we have automatic windows on our vehicles, and we buy fast food. You know, it's even called fast food, and we get it out of a window out of the side of the building because we can't be bothered to actually walk inside. I can't be walking into all kinds of buildings and whatnot, right? Just... Meet me halfway, I'll pull up and just shove it to me through the window. Because we're not good at waiting. And even if that takes too long, it's like, all right, let's add another drive through lane. we got to get it through. we got to make it fast. We make deposits by taking a picture of a check on our phone. Uh, We have a DVR because, God forbid, we ever watch commercials. We're just, we want what we want. We want it now. It's why every box of cereal in my house looks like it's been opened with a rusty hacksaw. Because my kids can't wait. They're just like, you know. We want what we want, when we want it, and that when is usually now. And unfortunately, we carry that attitude with us into our spiritual life. And instead of learning to endure through suffering and learning to wait on God's timing, more often than not, what we do is we impose our obsession with now on God. And when the circumstance doesn't work out, then we lose hope. And he's saying, no, hope is rooted in something so much deeper than that. It's so much bigger than that, that despite our circumstances, overwhelming victory will be ours because it's rooted in eternity. It's rooted in what Jesus wants to do forever, not just here and now. Paul says God's working even when we don't see it or feel it or understand it. In fact, he writes this in verse 28. He says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. 
God works in all things for the good. He works in all the situations, in all the things, in all the circumstances for the good. Throughout the Bible, God takes bad situations and he transforms them for good. He constantly brings life out of ashes and hope out of despair. God never wastes a hurt. And though God doesn't cause these things to happen, God will use our painful experiences and he'll use them to draw us closer to himself. He'll use them to give us an incredible vantage point through which to minister to other people and share our lives with other people. But here's our problem is that we want to take this verse that says God works all things for the good of people who love him and we want to apply optimism to it, which is rooted in situation. We go, see, that verse says, God, that you're working in my situation to make it work out. And Paul says, no, no, no. I don't want you to apply optimism to that. In the context of what we're talking about, I want you to apply hope to that. Hope says this, God is working even in my suffering. That God is working to make all things good, maybe not now, but in eternity. That things will not always be as they are now. That a day is coming, and we don't know when and we don't know how, but the day is coming when death and sin and pain and guilt will be conquered and groaning will finally end. So I will keep hope alive. Because I, I, I'm envisioning that, and I believe it's going to happen, and I'm moving in that direction. I want it to happen. I believe it. Which means that we're headed for something bigger than simply managing our emotions or protecting ourselves from some kind of earthly suffering. It means that whenever you reach the end of your rope, and at some point in our lives, all of us reach the end of our rope, you've been invited by God into something that is so much bigger than simply trying to attain some kind of personal tranquility. The, the attainment of a pleasant and manageable life is not the reason that you are walking around on this groaning planet. We are more than conquerors. Overwhelming victory is ours because of the love of Jesus. And this is incredible hope. It doesn't mean all of our circumstances change, but it's hope, and it's the kind of hope that overwhelmed the ancient world. It's the kind of hope that captivated human hearts. It's the kind of hope that would lead people to suffer and die because they believed something bigger than themselves. They believed something bigger than the circumstances of their life, so they didn't fear death because they believed there was a hope in eternity. And so keep hope alive because you belong to Jesus. He never promised absence of suffering, but he did promise hope. He did promise to overcome this world and hope for eternity. So keep your hope alive. Keep hope alive in your pain. Keep hope alive in your suffering, in your groaning, in your marriage, in your family, in your home, in your job, in your strength and in your weakness, in your doubt and in your confusion, in your growth and in your guilt. Keep hope alive alive. Hold on to Jesus because nothing can ever separate you from him. That's good news. And then when you feel like the situation isn't resolving, then you pray. And when you can't pray, then you just groan. And when you can't groan, Paul says God's spirit groans on your behalf. Because one day all things will be as they should be. And until that day, we continue to hold on to the love of Jesus. And if you're here today, if you're watching online and you've never said yes to that hope, maybe you've felt like life is hopeless because you've been trying to find it in your situation rather than in the one who created you and loves you. But I want you to know you're invited. That Paul says, God didn't wait for you to get your act together. That while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He came for us. And if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family... I want to give you that opportunity. 
So whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online, all that means is this, that you say, I, God, I don't understand everything about the Bible. I got a lot of questions. There's stuff that, you know, I may never understand. But if, if the message of the scriptures, if, if the story of Jesus is that you came for me and you want to give me hope outside of anything in this life and, and you're inviting me to be a part of your family and, and experience hope as a part of your family for all of eternity, I want that. I'll say yes to that. If that's where you're at, then would you just agree with this simple prayer as we close? God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you never walked away from me. And God, I I pray that uh, you would adopt me into your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. I want to give you the steering wheel of my life, and and I want to follow your way of living life as best as I know how. And in spite of my circumstances, I pray that you would fill me with hope. Hope for eternity. Hope that one day all things will be as they should be and let me live my life pushing in that direction. And God, I pray for every single one of us because every one of us experiences sorrow and difficulties and uh, suffering in different ways and in different times and in different seasons. And so I pray, may our hope not be rooted in our circumstances, but may we find our hope in eternity, in you, in who you are, in your love for us. May it be the anchor for our souls. We thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the way that you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.